politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Welcome to KPFK Los Angeles. This is Michael Benner, host of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And allow me to be the first to welcome me back to the airwaves. What a thrill. For those of you who uh, are not aware of it, I was host of a program called Inner Vision a program about spirituality and mysticism and metaphysics and consciousness raising and all that from 1993 until, oh, the beginning of 2008, so about 14 years. And then my beautiful wife, Doreen, and I moved to Maui, lived in Hawaii for five years. And so that was the end of the KPFK program, of course. But uh, having been back in town for 12 or 13 years, maybe it's time to do another radio program. What do you think? We're going to call it the Ageless Wisdom or more completely the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I like to begin by telling you a little bit about what the Ageless Wisdom is. It's uh, philosophy, basically, sometimes esoteric, sometimes exoteric. It's about the individual and his and her self-improvement and search for development. Uh, Awareness really is what it comes down to, being more awake and alert to find the peace and the love, the harmony and the wisdom, the truth and the beauty that resides inside us at all times, even when the world is crazy, full of disease, pandemic, fear, corrupt government, economic chaos, and all the anxiety that goes along with everything that we've been going through in 2020. And boy, it has been a difficult year, hasn't it? And will continue to be for some time, these Challenges are not going to go away on January 20th. But uh, we're going to work together. That's what community radio is all about. That's what KPFK is all about. And this particular program is going to bring you, beginning today, some really wonderful guests, some very well-informed, very knowledgeable people with deep understanding of what you can do in a really practical and and pragmatic way to be more influential with yourself in your own life. You know, everybody wants to do things for other people and help other people. It's a glorious feeling to know that you're actually able to help somebody. But the degree to which we're able to be of service to others is obviously a function of what we can do for ourselves. If you want to teach, you've got to be knowledgeable. If you 
want to lead somebody up the mountain, you've got to be a mountain climber and be the first one up the trail. And so that's where it all begins. Even empathy is a function of what we understand about ourselves. And so I'm thrilled to be back and uh, to introduce today as my guest on this initial program, a woman I've known for, gosh, more than 10 years, I'm not even sure, who is going to talk to us about yoga and in particular Yoga for children and tweens. Get them started early. (laughs) They're great students because it's a natural state that we're seeking to replicate. But I'll let her tell you all about it. Allow me to introduce to the KPFK audience from Pasadena, Abby Wills. Hello, Abby, and welcome to KPFK. Hi, Michael, and welcome back to the radio waves. I'm so happy to be on in this part of your journey with you. And, and as a huge fan of inner vision, this means a lot to me. Well, you were the first person I thought of when I started assembling the list of guests, because I don't think we ever did a radio program together. How did you personally get interested in the field that we know generally as yoga? What is yoga? What's it mean? What does it mean to you in particular? How'd you become interested? And then we'll talk a little more about what you're doing locally. Sure. So how did I get interested in yoga? I was first exposed to uh, the philosophies of the East, studying philosophy at the University of South Alabama. Um, Right out of high school, I moved from South Louisiana to South Alabama. And in a comparative religions class was exposed to the Vedas and the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita. And when I first read the words and started to dive into um, these ancient texts, I felt as though I was meeting myself in a whole new way and meeting life and the world and other human beings in a whole new way, as though there was a new lens or maybe a lack of lens. I'm not sure, but it was transformative, truly, to be exposed to these texts and to, for the first time, as, you know, an American girl, um, to see how differently people from other parts of the world lived and not only lived day to day, but view the world. So my worldview really shifted. And at the same time, uh, not through classes, but through visits to the local bookstore, I happened to pick up a book by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. So at the same time that I was learning something about the what is known as the Sanatana Dharma, I was also tapping into this Tibetan yoga. And so for me, yoga has always been a very broad umbrella, right? So if we think about yoga in the, in the West or yoga in America, um, the mainstream perspective on yoga shows us a lot of postures and stretches and um, yoga pants and things like that. Um, 
but my introduction to yoga was really, really broad. And so when, when I think of the meaning of yoga, it's, it's a little difficult to just say in a few words because there are so many yogas. You know, yoga is a, is a complex and sophisticated system of practices. There are, um, you know, the yoga that we think of as yoga typically in America is known as Hatha yoga. Um, and Hatha yoga is one piece of a, a broader spectrum of practices coming from Ashtanga yoga or the eight limbs of yoga um, as taught by Sage Patanjali thousands of years ago. And then there are other kinds of yoga that are based in music, Nada yoga and Bhakti yoga that are devotional um, ways of practicing. And there are kinds of yoga that focus only on mantra, Jnana yoga, where you're meditating with a mantra and you're repeating the same phrase over and over again. Um, so many kinds of yoga. The, the style that I tend to practice and teach most is in the realm of Raja Yoga, which is the science of the mind. So the one thing that all of the yogas have in common is that we're working with this aspect of our lives and ourselves called the mind. And as you referred to, um, awareness. So awareness is really the gateway into this natural state that you spoke of, of peace and contentment. So truly yoga is a system of practices and lifestyle choices, ways of living that are a path toward liberation. And they're available to anyone. Um, there are so many different ways in and out of yoga. But the one thing that really brings it all together is that, you know, the goal of yoga is to be free. I think in the West, most people think of yoga as the asanas, the, the stretching, the exercise. Um, and there are many classes where people go for the stretching and then they go home. And I always thought that the stretching was a, a preparation for the meditation that follows. Is that your understanding of it? Absolutely. And, you know, if you just do a little bit of research into the eight limbs of yoga, you find that the first two are the sort of ethical branches. So the restraints and the observances, things like nonviolence or ahimsa in Sanskrit, um, things to do and things not to do. And they track pretty closely with sort of the universal um ways of being that you'll find in most spiritual paths and in most religions even, just about being a, a, a kind, loving person and taking care of ourselves and each other. And then the final, you know, four branches of yoga are all about meditation. And then there's these two branches that are in between called asana and pranayama, which, which comprise hatha yoga. And the asana, it means something like steady, comfortable seat. It's not a perfect translation because translating from Sanskrit to English is not the most fluid situation. And then we have the pranayama, which is roughly translated as breath control or restraining the life force energy. 
And so those are the pieces that are very common in the yoga classes that we have here in America, the asana, the pranayama, the the postures and the breathing. And so they're they're sandwiched in between the ethics and the meditation for a reason. So we start the path by working on ourselves in terms of how we treat ourselves and how we treat others. And then we're taking on the physical practices of yoga and the breathing to prepare ourselves to be able to sit. If any any listeners have ever tried sitting in meditation, I know we have a lot of meditation practice, practitioners here um, and KPFK uh, listeners, but even seasoned meditators will find that the body can be rigid. It can feel too tight, too loose at times. It can be painful to sit in meditation for long enough periods of time to sort of make progress into the present moment. And so the asanas and the breathing were really uh, preparations for sitting. So yes, you're, you're right on about that. You know, one of the most ironic concepts, I think, when people approach me with questions about self-improvement, personal development, expanded awareness. They say things like, how can I overcome my fear? How can I overcome uh, my stress and anxiety? Uh, How do I overcome these bad habits? And the problem with that, it always seemed to me, is that overcoming implies an effort which suggests tension and resistance to something. Whereas yoga is just the opposite. It's like, how do I let go of fear, stress, anxiety? How do I let go of my resistance? And the stretching and the breathing, I think, must be a real important part of that. Absolutely. And in Inside of the asana practice or the postures and stretching, there's a a relationship that's always happening between our bodies and ourselves or our bodies and our minds. And so we're learning how to use the breath to work through density in the body. And the density or the tightness and the rigidity has a purpose. It's a teacher. It's showing us how to deal with stress and anxiety, not just on the mat, but out in the world. And so I, I agree with you, Michael, about, you know, this reframing from overcoming this efforted uh, thing into letting go. It's, it's, it's more effortless. And then also, I would just add, and this comes more from the Tibetan styles of yoga um, and the practice of Dzogchen, it's really about accepting whatever is happening. It's and it's not about um, accepting in the, in the way of being indifferent. Um, I have a teacher named Sogni Rinpoche, um, who's from Tibet, and you know you hear this, but he talks a lot about uh, feeling to heal feelings. So feelings, feeling heals feelings, and it's this idea of not pushing away any feeling. But allowing it to be just, you know, as a as a visitor, as Rumi would say, right? As just welcome whatever is there, be with it, see it, and try not to have to intervene and control everything that's happening within our field. 
And sometimes just by being welcoming and not resisting, not trying to push away, but just accepting, we find that a lot of the stress and anxiety and that energy of overwhelm can sort of dissipate and dissolve on its own as we just allow it to be. Acceptance is a tough one, Abby, because especially in the West, Europe and the Americas, there is this manifest destiny idea. Uh, Napoleon is known for having said, as a kind of a protest, he said, circumstance, I make circumstance. And we're taught, especially men, uh, are, are taught to fashion and mold their realities. And of course, there's a lot to be said for that, but not until we accept reality in the first place. And the best definition I ever heard of acceptance is to acknowledge reality. So whether you wish to leave it as it is or modify or improve a condition or situation, it makes sense you'd have to begin by accepting the truth of what's happening right here, right now. That's right. And it's interesting because I think, you know, there's two sides of the same coin. On one side, there's acceptance. And on the other side, there's this notion of non-attachment. And so I think there's sort of the same thing. There are two, diff- two completely different points of view. And non-attachment is a huge component of, of yoga. And it often gets... Um, I would say misunderstood as something like indifference. And I think that's sort of the, a fear that lots of people have. Well, if I accept that I'm afraid, doesn't that just keep me afraid? Or um, if I accept that the world is confusing and confused, then it just keeps it that way. If we add in this, this component of non-attachment, it's saying I'm accepting the I'm accepting the way things are right now, and I'm not attached to them. So I'm not perpetuating these things by accepting them. I had a teacher who actually um, she's an acting teacher. She was a neighbor of of mine in West Hollywood for a long time, and I would go and sit in on her classes. And to me, she was more like a Buddhist teacher than an acting teacher, but she was a great acting coach. And she would always say, acceptance gives us permission to move forward, that until we accept what is, we're sort of stuck in it. And so accepting it is saying, okay, here I am present with with the way things are, as you said, acknowledging the way things are. Now I can make an informed choice and move forward. So I don't think acceptance means keeping things the way that they are. And yoga in itself is a very progressive path that lends itself to progress in in social systems, in health systems, personally and collectively. Actually, I think when we refuse to accept, when we resist, we hold on. We gather tension in the body. We call it being stuck, but (laughs) we're really really holding on. So uh, acceptance is the only way to move forward. We're talking about yoga. My guest is Abby Wills. And we'll be right back after this brief message. You're listening to KPFK-FM 90.7 in Los Angeles. Please help keep independent journalism alive and KPFK Radio strong. Become a Sustainer Circle member of KPFK by pledging at any level. $10, $20, $100 per month, whatever suits you. 
This is Verdine White of Earth, Wind, and Fire, encouraging you to make your tax-deductible donation today at 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. This is KPFK Los Angeles, also heard at 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, and 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake. And of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Thanks for being with us. My name is Michael Benner. This is the Ageless Wisdom on KPFK, and we're talking about yoga today. My guest is Abby Wills. Abby, tell us a little about your organization, uh, Shanti Generation, right? Sure. Yes, so Shanti Generation has been uh, in existence for about 12 years. I have been teaching yoga and mindfulness in schools, all, all kinds of schools, public, private, charter, independent, magnet, all sorts of schools for a little over 20 years. And... Um, About 12 years ago, I was teaching at a wonderful school, a remarkable school on the west side of Los Angeles called New Road School. It was a middle middle school campus. And uh, my students and I decided that there just wasn't enough content available in terms of yoga and mindfulness practices for young people. So it was this organization was really organically born from this realization that I had with my students. Uh, The way it happened was I needed to be absent one day or one week from teaching. And I sent a yoga DVD (laughs) to be my substitute teacher because the school couldn't find one. And it was an adult yoga DVD. It was a fine practice, but the students had big problems with it. (laughs) It just didn't resonate with them. And they said, well, we should do something. We should make some uh, content for young people. And so we did. We found a production company and a dear friend of mine named Michael Keenert, who I had been meditating with for years, once per week, um, was a producer at this company. And he decided that we would create some, at that time, yoga DVDs for young people. And my students really worked very closely with each other and myself to write the program and to build a program for other teens and tweens who don't have access to yoga studios like we do here in Los Angeles to be able to tap into the practices. So that's where Shanti Generation started as really a media production company. And then over time, we started to grow into live trainings and programs. And now with Shanti Generation, um, we have a small group of very talented, lovely, and wise teachers who um, we partner with lots of different organizations around Los Angeles, like Barnstall Arts, um, which is a nonprofit who's been in LA for about 40 years doing art programming in schools and community centers uh, with young people. So we go into schools and we do programs combining art and yoga. Um, And we work with a variety of other organizations and firms. We consult with um, Head Start and early Head Start programs in districts all around Southern California to provide professional development training for preschool teachers. Um, That's through a partnership with Full Circle Consulting Systems. Um, So we're 
Full service, we do programming from preschool through high school for students, as well as professional development for teachers and administrators. And we also just started working in uh, upper education with a company who serves as a credentialing company. And we recently started serving upper education through ACEI, um, offering mindfulness training to professionals in the college and university system. Teachers are always interested in children becoming more attentive. Uh, Sometimes the word concentration is used. And like we discussed a few minutes ago, the problem with that is concentration is usually thought of as an effort. So I think people confuse concentration and constipation. It's like, you know, you got to concentrate really hard. And again, here comes the tension into the muscles and the monkey mind kicks in and has exactly the opposite effect that you intended. How do we contrast mindfulness to attention or concentration? Such a good question. And it's really the heart of how mindfulness can positively impact learners. So you're right. We're always telling students, I mean, it's just so common, you know, pay attention. We're always, not always, but we're often telling students that, you know, they don't have enough attention, that their attention isn't good enough. It's sort of the message that they're getting oftentimes in, in classrooms. And what we really need to be teaching learners, whether it's young children, teens, or adult learners, it's really how to cultivate attention by way of awareness. So when I'm working with a new group of, let's say, teenagers, the very first lesson, the very first exploration is into the meaning and function of awareness. And so one way to help young people understand what is meant by awareness is, let's say, you know, close your eyes or relax your eyes into one direction and imagine the doorway of the place where you live, whether it's your home, your apartment building, wherever you live, imagine that doorway or imagine the doorway to the building that we're in right now. So you pass through it every day. Can you visualize it? Can you see it? And more often than not, most teens say, yes, I can, I know what color it is. And then imagine that what it feels like when you open that door, when you touch the doorknob, when you pull the door open, is it heavy? Is it light? Um, Does it make a noise? And teens find that they can recall all of this information, this sort of sensory awareness. And then I say, but is that door here? And of course it's not. And so sort of that's a very, you know, rudimentary way of explaining awareness that even though that door is not in this room, you can be aware of it just in the same way you can be aware that you live in a vast universe. Your awareness is infinite. It's limitless. It's boundless. It can be anywhere and everywhere at one time. When we bring our awareness 
to where we are now and feel the seat that we're in and feel our own bodies and attend to our breath and attend to ourselves, it's anything but a contracting experience, although it can be for people in the beginning. But what we, what we learn through practice is that we want to bring a gentle awareness to our present moment, to the space that we're in, the people who we are living with and learning with. And by bringing our awareness into the present, we start to learn to direct our attention. We start to become aware of what information we are taking in. And the beautiful thing I think about awareness um, is that it's already there. It's not something that we need to, we don't need to make it. We don't need to create it. Awareness is with all of us, but we can cultivate it and hone it in a way that allows us to purposefully direct our attention. And through that direction of attention, we learn to focus and that focus is not a tight, contracted state of mind. It can be very fluid and very lucid if we can approach it from a more compassionate uh, place. So in other words, instead of chastising children because they're having a hard time sort of sitting still, we actually work with that energy and say, okay, let's rock and tap and let's let our brains know that you're safe first and then we'll begin to work with the higher functions of awareness and attention and focus. So beyond thought, beyond emotional feeling, beyond physical behavior, beyond perception of our world, is awareness of all of those things. Awareness, it seems, is... Well, I, I, I like to think of it as the ocean because... It brings to mind this uh, old African, Ethiopian, actually, proverb, fish discover water last. A fish has no idea what it means to be wet or to live in the ocean. Maybe a flying fish does once it, <laughs> once it breaks the surface, you know. It knows there's another universe. But uh, fish discover water last. Marshall McLuhan used to use the allegory as well uh, back in the 60s a lot. It's like awareness for most of us is something we never think of. It's, okay, children, try harder, think, read, study, go over it again, read it again, damn it. Without any mention, in most cases, you're changing that and the women and men who are doing the work you're doing in schools, uh, fortunately, are beginning to to change all of that. But the idea that I got all the way through school and nobody ever used the word awareness, not once, right? And there never was a class in how to understand yourself. All the psychology I had, <laughs> nothing about know thyself or even emotional intelligence. So a lot of this is really new. It, it is. And I think that on some level, maybe some of us can look back and find that one teacher or a few teachers who somehow shepherded us through, you know, the rote kind of education, the kind of banking system of education to, to use the work of Paulo Freire. Um, 
there were those certain teachers that just by by virtue of who they were, allowed us some ease and maybe some deeper understanding of ourselves. But what's happening now is that bolstered by neuroscience and the social-emotional learning movement, um, in particular the work of Daniel Goleman and his work around emotional intelligence, and I know, Michael, you are a pioneer as well in emotional intelligence, and I've learned a tremendous amount from your writings and teachings throughout the years, what's happening now is that we understand that what you were describing as the concentration versus constipation, that state of being, that state of relating with students completely blocks our ability to learn. You know, when we're in that fight or flight state, when we're feeling threatened and let's face it, many students feel threatened in, in many classrooms. And whether that's because of the climate of the school or because of pressure to succeed or because they're in situations in learning climates or in learning cultures that don't support how they learn, there's this sense of threat and of inadequacy and students just can't perform their best in that state of mind. And so and that state of brain, really. And so as neuroscience, in particular the work of Dr. Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin-Madison at the Center for Healthy Minds, he's really showing, and his, you know, his team of researchers there and around the world are showing us that if we want students to be their best and to reach their potential, we first have to care for the child or for the teenager. And even before that, we need to care for our teachers. So we know that children learn more from what we as teachers, how we're being, than what we're saying. And I think that's kind of a Jungian um, concept, although I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist of any, any way, shape, or form. But this idea that our bodies, our minds, our beingness, our beings learn from each other in relationship. And then there's content. So if the relationship isn't healthy and there's not trust and safety in the relationship, then learning is just not possible. We can force memorization. But what we're understanding is that by attending to the social and emotional needs of students, learners, and teachers, as well as all of the other other adults in the system, that then learning can happen. And then we're getting toward that self-knowledge that you spoke about that leads us to empathy and compassion and the, you know, higher states of being that create more peace and more harmony within ourselves, our communities, our homes, and ultimately the world. I think there is inherent in mindfulness, in, in awareness, a uh, curiosity, a, uh, a fascination that motivates us to want to understand more. I also think it's important to point out that understanding is more than knowledge. There's a great Einstein quote, it's a bit harsh, but he said, any fool can know things. The secret is to understand them. So the understanding that that goes beyond simply knowing facts and figures and data, I think comes naturally out of the yearning or longing and the fascination 
if we could awaken that in children or, or as we learn to, um, you use the word cultivate. I like that a lot to foster that. Wow. Golly gee. Oh boy. What a cool thing this is. This geometry, this, uh, biology or, or whatever. I think that lives in expanded awareness and with a mindfulness practice, it's just naturally more present. I love that. And I, you know, the first question I typically ask students of any age, what's your name? And tell me something you love. Tell me something. Tell me about something that makes you feel alive. Tell me what you care about. If we start from there, then I know as an instructor, as an educator, how to help students connect the dots. It, it, there's no skill or passion or talent or hobby or everything in life can be connected into awareness, mindfulness, and yoga, right? There's, if it's, if you love to play basketball, if you love to skateboard, if you love to make music, make art, ride your bike, it can all be used as metaphors and ways to understand these practices. Because when we're doing something we love, when we're engaged with an activity or in a relationship where there is that sense of love and life, that's what we're really going for. We're just trying to be in that space and that state of mind more often in our lives so that there is less suffering and less misery. And so that instead of othering each other, so to speak, we're actually allowing more space for the other, for each other to exist. And so I find, especially with adolescent youth, you know, from 13 on up into early adulthood, when I ask students, tell me something you care about, they just kind of turn their head and look at me funny. Like, why would you ask me that? Because that's not their lives, their lived experiences and their passions in a lot of schools and a lot of, you know, learning institutes are not part of the curriculum. And I'm a strong believer that curriculum comes from the lived experiences of our students. And then the skills that we're trying to teach kind of float on top of that. But if we don't invite the whole person into the classroom to be there and, as you say, be curious and to question and to grapple with whatever the content area is, then we're really missing the whole point of education. Yeah. Knowledge goes in, but understanding is brought forth. It, it, it comes out. Let's talk more about mindfulness in a minute. Right after this short break, you're listening to The Ageless Wisdom on KPFK. The Car Show has aired on KPFK since 1973. And perhaps you have a car that's been sitting in your driveway since 1973 or 1993. Or maybe you're still driving it, but it's time to say goodbye. Get rid of that thing and help KPFK at the same time. Your donation of your old car gets it out of your life and helps KPFK as a tax-deductible donation. And not just cars, trucks, boats, and motorcycles are also welcome. It's easy. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO and we'll handle all the details. Let your old car help KPFK. KPFK on your radio at 90.7 FM, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Thanks for joining us today. We're talking about the field of yoga 
and in particular now mindfulness and meditation, an exercise known as Vipassana or insight. And my guest is Abby Wills from Shanti Generation in Pasadena. And Abby, you gotta uh, be sure before we wrap it up here in a few minutes that you give us your web address and uh, email address, phone number, whatever, uh, whatever it is you want to put out there for people to get a hold of you, especially if they have kids or tweens and want to get them involved or get you to come to their schools. Um, this is such important work. So let's talk a little about the elements of mindfulness. You know, I got into this field uh, in a backward way, I guess. I began meditating in the early 1970s, right out of college, and was introduced to a program called Silva Mind Control which is basically a self-hypnosis class with no emotional work, much less any spiritual overtones to it at all. And it was about guided imagery or creative visualization, which you touched on earlier in the show. And it's a very powerful technique, and I've used it for pain control and accelerated healing accelerated learning, and to a large degree on uh, alleviating anxiety disorders with uh, clients for for years. But um, slowly I began to discover these more fundamental exercises, and particularly Vipassana, began to practice them. And now that's sort of my go-to meditation, you know. I'll still use uh, a, a guided imagery exercise. I may even use a mala and chant a mantra sometime uh, if I feel sort of tactile <laughs> and I want to touch something and feel like chanting. But the idea of just watching my breath and identifying as the watcher rather than the breather, to me is so important and so enlightening to realize that your body breathes itself all by itself. You don't have to do that. And if only we knew that about our lives, that the vast majority of the problems that we worry about will resolve themselves. And yet we think that by worrying and wringing our hands that when it does resolve itself, we take credit for it. You know, well, I did all this worry and I talked to all my friends about it and I stayed awake at night and ran these dialogues through my head and that must have had something to do with it. No, maybe not. <laughs> Maybe it would have solved itself, resolved itself in due time without all that effort. So let's discuss some of the elements of Vipassana. I think we'll probably have to begin with the idea of being present or in the present moment. Tell us a little about that. Sure. Um, I also kind of came into 
this realm of practices um, through a different pathway. And visualization was a was um, one of the first types of, of meditation that I did as well. And I find it to be really, really helpful for young people because their their imagination, their creative mind is still so available to them. And so just to discover the power of the mind through visualization is is very powerful. But when we talk about, you know, the kinds of practices that we're teaching in schools, we speak about mindfulness. And mindfulness is it it can be a meditation, but it doesn't have to be. And what I mean by that is that in many ways, in lots of realms of um education and even in the medical field, mindfulness is being taught as really just a way of interacting with our lives. So there may be a formal sitting practice involved or not. Many people are learning mindfulness through walking or learning mindfulness through sensory awareness. And the the kind of organizing factor is that in mindfulness practice and in mindful living, the idea is that we are engaging with whatever is happening within us and around us in real time without a filter, so to speak. Or if there is a filter, the filter is one of kindness and curiosity. And as we spoke of earlier, non-judgment. So the autopilot sort of way that many human beings uh, live is that we're constantly looking around or even within and checking the like or dislike box. I mean, it's it's so pervasive in our uh, virtual lives, right? Through social media where we like this. There's not always a way to say you don't like it, but boy, if you don't like it, you can let loose on it. You know, <laughs> what I'm getting at is that we're constantly um, in our sort of editorial opinion-making mind. And it doesn't really do much for us besides create conflict or pleasure. And the idea with mindfulness and, and meditation is to reach not necessarily a neutral state, because I don't think it's I don't think neutral really speaks to this state, but it's a more balanced, um, integrated state of being that allows us to pass through lots of experiences that can be pleasurable or non-pleasurable, but they don't stick to us. So that's um, sort of a one of the basic tenets of of mindfulness is that we're noticing, let's say, for example, in Vipassana meditation or different styles of what's known as shamatha meditation, where we are purposefully placing the mind on some sort of anchor, often the breath. And it might be the breath in one particular part of the body. And we're using this as truly an anchor for our awareness and our attention. So we watch the breath and we watch the breath and then we notice, oh, my right hip is on fire. I have a burning pain in my hip. And then we get caught up in that. And then we notice that all of our attention is on the burning pain in our hip. And we just gently guide the awareness back to the breath. And so then we do that over and over again. And if you, you know, really committed to this practice, you might go and, and do this every day for 30 days, all day long. And so what are we doing? We're creating a different pathway, a more conscious pathway in the brain and ultimately in the mind, right? So as we notice where our attention is, we decide, do I want my attention to stay there or do I come back 
to whatever my chosen anchor is. So that's one form. And I would say typically in, in mindfulness practices, there is some sort of anchor there for the mind, something to come back to. And then there's a whole other realm of, of meditation um, and practice where there is no anchor. There is no support. There's just more of an open monitoring of what we might call reality, what, what I'm feeling and experiencing in my body, what's happening and not happening around us. And there's no sense of trying to necessarily direct the mind into one particular place, but it's more about expanding awareness to the periphery and even allowing our awareness to move beyond what we can see and hear and look for that backdrop of what the Tibetans refer to as Rigpa or this luminous natural state that doesn't need, it's not emerging. It just is. It's always there. And through lots of practice and lots of teachings with masters, much more knowledgeable and understanding than myself, that state can be realized. And sometimes it's a glimpse. Over time, the practices help us to abide with that peace that is already there. I think it probably is our schooling and the way we're educated that makes us believe that understanding life in general throughout our life, outside of the classroom, outside of work, is about thinking. And I think it's revolutionary to begin to consider that unless our thoughts and feelings are very well managed and our awareness is expanded, it's likely that thoughts and emotions are distorting reality not interpreting it. And I think of the allegory of water, and this came to me in a meditation one afternoon, that still water allows you to peer into the water deeply, while at the same time giving you the ability to see what's reflected on the surface. But if that water is disturbed, you can neither see into it nor recognize anything reflected on the surface. And so bring that into your meditation, the idea of becoming calm, like I heard a Buddhist say, like a glass lake, you know, to feel your disposition becoming as smooth as glass. And that tranquility allows you to see deeply plus that which overshadows. Mm. Yeah, I mean, your your allegory of the water is, is so akin to um, what Sage Patanjali, how he describes yoga as the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. And so that's, you know, very different than sort of how mainstream media shows us yoga, but that's truly what it is, is the mind has a natural state that we can all um, experience. It's always there, but it's sort of un, it's sort of underneath all of that dissonance and trying and efforting and opinions and 
ambition. But underneath that, as we settle and as we settle the body and our nervous system has such a huge part to do with it. It's, it's really just incredible to me to think about, you know, thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands of years ago that human beings were experiencing what we're just now discovering in the lab about our nervous systems and how we have not just one, but multiple, you know, phases, if you will, of our nervous system as we start to learn about the vagus nerve and how our breath, just by changing the way we breathe, we change the way we change how our body and mind are. The breath changes our being. Um, you know, I had written a short note in a newsletter to um, our Shanti generation community. Um, and by the way, you can find us at Shanti. Shanti means peace, S-H-A-N-T-I, generation.com, shantigeneration.com. So I was writing this letter to our community and thinking about this idea of taking a deep breath and how we're always, the common wisdom is take a deep breath, take five breaths. And it's this sense of like deep inhale, which can be really helpful and effective. But what neuroscience is showing us is that if we're already in a distressed or contracted state, that breathing in can be agitating to the nervous system, that it, it just slightly stimulates that fight or flight um, response in the body. But the long exhale actually soothes the nervous system and it's in conjunction with our rest and digest pathway in the nervous system. So that as we exhale longer, that's a much more calming device than trying to take deep, deep inhales. And I've had plenty of experiences in particular in um, uh, school systems working with highly stressed individuals who are high up in school systems who are in, in responsible to for many, many people in districts. And when we talk about breathing, it, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, I feel anxious when I take a deep breath. And so now we understand where that's coming from, is that if we're already tight inside, then we start to focus on the breath. Then what happens now? We're focusing on the tightness. Now we're aware of the tightness. So to start with that longer exhale, to start with that release and that letting go, and then allow the inhales to lengthen with less effort and um, just trusting our own experience. Our bodies know how to breathe. But really, I believe the breath is, is the connection between the body and the mind, right? And so as we follow that breath into the body, we're making a connection. We're bringing a sense of more unification into our systems. And as we follow the breath out of the body, we have this opportunity to experience more space so that for some of us, we're disembodied and we don't feel our bodies. And for others, we're com so completely consumed with pain in our body that just to allow our mind to follow the breath into the space from which it came can be a very liberating experience. It's very simple, but as one of my mentors and and um, teachers that I admire, Susan Kaiser Greenland says all the time, it's very simple, but it's not easy because there are, so, are these pathways of opinion um, and the autopilot that we're so used to, they're strong. So that's why consistent practice is the way to build that new neural circuitry in our, in our brains to where at some point this does become a lot easier until you have children and then it gets hard again. <laughs>
Abby, how can people contact you again? What's the best way to get a hold of you? So visit, you can visit our web, website, shantigeneration.com, shanti, S-H-A-N-T-I, generation.com. Abby Wills. And before we run, I want to mention just for the uh, musicians in the crowd, people that love music, uh, Abby's husband is really well known as, well, his stage persona is Peanut. And so Abby is Mrs. Peanut from 311. And uh, I wanted to be sure to mention that and thank Aaron. Uh, we've been to several 311 concerts over the year, uh, over the years in Maui and in Southern California. And uh, I, I love the band and I love that you've got that other <laughs> little part of your life. I know you as a, a yoga teacher and a mother and a wife and a rock and roll uh, <laughs> backstage pass person. And it's it's all fun. We can't wait to do that again <laughs> when the world is healthy again. Um, but you reminded me just one other thing really quick, Michael, is that um, Aaron did lots and lots of music for our our kids and teens yoga content of which we have tons of free videos on YouTube. So if you just go to YouTube and, and, and search for Shanti generation, you can find over 70 videos just free for your children and teens to use. And you can hear Aaron's music and please do. Okay. Thank you again. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for joining us for our first program back on KPFK. We call it now the ageless wisdom mystery school. And this podcast by KPFK and also in my podcast stream. My website is michaelbenner.com if you have any other questions. Thanks a lot for being here. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner on KPFK 89.1.